Well, good evening. We are thankful that you are here this evening, especially to the visitors in our midst. We're thankful that you've come our way as we study together for a few moments this evening. We're thankful for the good day that we've had. Um, I hope that you were able to pick up a bulletin uh, for several reasons, of course, to always remember our sick as we try to do, but to take note of all the things that are going on here at SADI and anything that you can be a part of, we would love to, to have you be a part of that. Tonight we're going to consider a lesson um, in connection with some things that we've done recently, a few other lessons that we've had over the last few months. You know, there are many people in the world who are very confused in a religious sense. And so when they have questions, that maybe you get a question from time to time of people that you know, it, it doesn't mean that we should treat people as if they're crazy in a sense, or that sounds like a, a stupid question we might say. Uh, they might simply have a false idea about something that the Bible says. And we surely understand that there are many false ideas out there and many different reasons why people believe that. So from time to time, it helps us to try to look at these different issues or ideas or doctrines. We could use any number of words to, to understand ourselves so that we might have an idea of how to, to help someone or to help answer a particular question. The Bible certainly speaks of us being prepared and having our answers lined up in a sense that we are not, not in the sense that we are perfect or that we have it all figured out, but that we can hopefully point someone towards the truth. And certainly sometimes the answer is simply, I'm not sure right now with every single verse, but maybe I could study or we could study again at a future time. You know, it's often been said that hopefully when people know better, then people will do better. And so for sometimes for us, it's simply an opportunity to try to help someone know better. It's not that they're just so entrenched sometimes in, in a false idea that they'll never hear the truth, but sometimes that's all they know. And so for us to have an opportunity to teach someone might be a good thing. Unfortunately, we all know that many people simply believe, fill in the blank with whatever it might be sometimes, because their preacher has said it and said it for as long as they can remember. Or maybe it's a parent or a grandparent. That's what my grandfather always said. So that's all they know. And even as we're going to touch on tonight, for many people, it's even because the Pope says it. And because the Pope says it, then that means it's got to be true. So I'm going to believe it without any other investigation. So a while back, we had a lesson on a false teaching idea called universalism. And it was something interesting for us to consider, whether you actually have talked to someone that, that believed that or not. Maybe you understand a little better there about that. Even a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, we had a lesson uh, about a misunderstood passage of the Bible. If you were with us, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how some people will use there that Paul says, I didn't come to baptize as an idea that baptism is not essential for salvation. And of course, when we take a look at the context and we understand what Paul is really trying to say, it can be a misunderstood passage of the Bible. So the title for tonight's lesson, if you had a bulletin or were with us this morning and you got to see it ahead of time, it was, of course, in a sense, hopefully to draw your interest into what we might be discussing. When do I get my sainthood? Well, this is certainly something that is a misunderstanding for a lot of people. For some people, it's on purpose. For some people, it's not on purpose. They just simply have not been taught correctly. What is the truth when it comes to this concept of saint or the saints and sainthood? 
Is it true? Is it something that we should be practicing? But most importantly, is it of the Bible? What does the Bible have to say about it? Now, before we get further into the lesson, I'll make one sort of disclaimer, if you'll allow me to. I, I'm not intent on standing up here and bashing any one particular group or religious group or anything like that. From time to time, as we point out these different lessons and these false ideas, uh, I don't mean to, to call names or just tear people down, but we would welcome a chance for an honest examination of any doctrine. I say it as many times as I can. Don't take my word for it on anything simply because I say it. But let's have an honest examination of any idea and what the Bible has to say about it. So tonight, let's begin by looking for just a moment about what the world says about sainthood. Well, it's kind of hard to pin down. I mean, I could have spent uh, probably three or four hours every day this past week researching different websites and things to try to understand exactly what the world has to say or some of these religious groups has to say about sainthood. Uh, normally, it ha is at least five years. Uh, five years must pass after a person's death before the process leading to sainthood is initiated. Now, I actually learned several interesting things this week, including in that fact that on October 13th, so almost two, two months ago now, October 13th, there were more saints that were introduced to the world, I guess you might say. I'm not sure the exact term, uh, terminology there. But on October 13th, this may be a little hard for you to make out, and the middle of the screen, there's a big red curtain. At the very bottom there is the Pope. And above him in the five pictures, on October 13th, 2019, there were five people who became saints. Pope Francis declared England's Cardinal John Henry Newman, who died in the 1800s, and four different women uh, to become saints at the beginning of this mass in St. Petersburg Square that was attended, by the way, by 50,000 people from all continents. So... When it comes to this idea of misunderstanding and the number of people who misunderstand, and we're going to come back to that at the end of our lesson, uh, that certainly is a large number there. So when we think about sort of what I was able to find, in official church procedures, as it's defined, there are three steps to sainthood. A candidate becomes venerable, then blessed or blessed, and then saint. To be venerable is the title given to a deceased person recognized formerly by the Pope as having lived a heroically virtuous life. Or maybe they offered their life in the sense of martyrdom. To become blessed or beatified and recognized as a blessed, one miracle acquired through the candidate's intercession is required in addition to this heroic virtue or offering of life. And then third and finally comes canonization, which requires a second miracle, after the second step. So we got to get it all right here. First step, then uh, miracle, then second step, then second miracle, then the third step. Uh, it says here the Pope may waive these requirements. A miracle is not required prior to a martyr's beatification, but one is required before canonization. So in this ceremony here that took place on October 13th, the guy in the middle picture is John Henry Newman. He was said to be the most famous English theologian in modern times. In 1991, again he died in the 1800s, 1991 he was proclaimed venerable by Pope John Paul II. 
It was determined that uh, in 2001, an American man from Massachusetts attributed his recovery from a spinal cord disorder to the intercession of Newman. Oftentimes, this involves praying in their name. So this guy in Massachusetts prays in this Newman's name, and he is healed, and so that proved as a miracle. The approval of a further miracle at the intercession of Newman was reported in 2018, the healing of a pregnant woman from a grave illness. And in case I don't think you believe that I'm making this up, I found a 12-minute YouTube video of this lady giving her explanation of what happened to her. Still alive and well, but she was healed by this miracle. And so in July, with an affirmative vote, this uh, occasion here, this mass was set to take place, and he was going to become a saint. Many of us are a little more familiar with Mother Teresa. Uh, we met, mentioned her last Sunday morning, a quote from her, and she was even brought up in class. But many people know Mother Teresa. In Mother Teresa's case, a woman who prayed to this sister, uh, even though she was deceased at the time, prayed to her, allegedly was cured of her cancer. Uh, and apparently this episode will constitute the nun's first miracle. Now what's interesting is doctors at this time said that this lady was going through medical treatment and making improvement. And not only that, but her husband called it a hoax. But the church has approved it as one of the first miracles. And then even in 2015, uh, or excuse me, in 2008, a Brazilian man um, claimed to have his brain tumors healed by praying, I believe it is, to Mother Teresa, and she was, again, this was approved as a miracle, and she was going to be proclaimed a saint. There are many, many false ideas. We could go on and on. I tried to find a list of how many it was, and it was going to be too long to even begin to count or recount all of these different occasions, but there are certainly many, many false ideas about sainthood, what it is, how it works, and unfortunately, like many other false ideas, false doctrines, false beliefs, people simply go with what they've always heard, or I think sometimes it's just whatever's easiest. It might be easy to believe that. And again, we're going to talk about the number of folks that do in just a few moments. But hopefully tonight, as people of God's word, we can do better by looking to what the Bible has to say. Now, the term or the word saint in the Bible is derived from a Greek word meaning separated. Or we might even say along the lines of holy. Holy, separate, separated in the idea of saint. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible do you see Peter or Paul called Saint Peter or Saint Paul. Now I was thinking as I made this note, I would caution you, depending on the Bible that you have in front of you, sometimes you will see the gospel according to St. Mark or St. Luke because the person, the, main, the men who wrote that Bible or put it together decided to call them saints. But you never hear Peter called St. Peter or St. Paul by anybody in the Bible. The term, in fact, in the Bible refers to an ordinary member of Christ's church, one who has previously submitted to the conditions of gospel obedience. In fact, you might recall in Acts chapter 26, in Acts chapter 26 and verse number 10, we had a lesson on this a while back. That is Paul's defense before Agrippa. Acts chapter 26 and verse number 10. And in fact, Paul uses this term there when he makes his defense by saying, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison. So Paul 
would refer to these people, these Christians, that he was going around and terrorizing as being saints. It's interesting for us to note as we think about what the Bible has to say about sainthood and these people who are referred to in Scripture as saints, these were living Christians. They were not corpse. They were not, they were not dead people. They were living Christians. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul would write, and, and a lot of the introduction to some of these letters that he would write that we have for us, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. These are not dead people. These are not bodies in the ground. These are living Christians who could accept this letter and read it for themselves. Paul would not write something to a person who could not read, who is dead and in the ground, but to somebody that he could encourage. And so he says, to all the saints, living Christians, now, I'm going to go ahead and put the next slide up, and if you have the bulletin, you'll begin filling in the many blanks that are there. I try to set a record for the number of blank spots there in the, uh, in the bulletin. But I want to get this point across to you. The idea in the Bible is that saints are people who have gone through sanctification. Very simple. And I wanted to give you the Greek words that are used there. That won't be, of course, of much use to you, especially not in any type of discussion, probably. But it just helps us sometimes to understand that, understand this. The word for saints, the hagios that is listed there, is translated saints 61 times in the New Testament. That saints, hagios, are ones who have gone through sanctification, hagiosmos. If you've got your Bible, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, we see this carried out throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, um, with the idea of being separate. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 16 and 17. Paul would write in verse 16 with a, a verse that we're familiar with, For you are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. And then in verse number 17, a quotation from Isaiah, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. If we are the temple of the living God, and in verse number 16, another Old Testament quotation there, we are going to be called the people of God, then we have to be separate. We have to be hagias, saints. When a person becomes a Christian, he or she is set apart from the world for divine service. And what's interesting about that, I think, and I didn't, of course, plan it this way necessarily, but when a person becomes a Christian, he or she is set apart from the world for divine service, and he or she enjoys a special relationship with the Father. What does that sound like? Prayer. We spent two Sunday mornings, and God be willing, a third next Sunday morning talking about prayer. It's an open line of communication with the Father available to those who are saints sanctified, hagias. When a person becomes a Christian, then they are able to enjoy these types of this type of special relationship. We're familiar, we've used it before, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter goes through the list, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and I even like later there in verse 10, who were not a people, but are now the people of God. 
That's the kind of people that we want to be. God's own special people. So we want to be sanctified ones. And as you have, if you've got your outline in front of you there, if saints are sanctified ones, then all Christians are saints. Now, there's a good chance as you saw this title and were thinking about this lesson, there's a good chance that many of you have known this for some time. But I thought it might be helpful for us to consider it again and maybe even be reminded of where exactly in the Bible you find these particular verses. If we're not careful, this is one of those things that when somebody says, well, they're going to make so-and-so a saint, we say, that's not true. That's not in the Bible. Okay, well, what can we do with that? Well, sometimes not very much because maybe we've never thought about it or we've never looked at the verses. So it can be encouraging for us to consider this again. All Christians are saints. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1, Paul begins that, by, that section of Scripture by saying, I beseech you, therefore, to walk worthy or worthily of your calling. All Christians who walk worthily of their calling are saints. And one thing that I think that is great is that saints, according to the world, when we think about saints, as we were talking about a few moments ago, saints, according to the world, are good people who have done good things. And that's true in a sense about what the Bible is saying. Again, saints are good people who do good things. That's what the world says. But what I think is great is what the Bible has to say in the sense that bad people who have become good people can be saints. And the passage that come to mind was 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. Do you remember there that Paul goes through the list of bad people, if you will? Not the only list. Certainly not in it, uh, the full list of people who we might call bad people, sinful people. But he talks about fornicators, idolaters, thieves, drunkards. And he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty simple. Cut and dry. These folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on in that important passage that is so encouraging to many of us. And such were some of you. Some of you were these bad people, or maybe better said, you were doing these bad things. But what changed? What changed in them so that they could inherit the kingdom of God? Well, he says, they were washed, they were justified, and thirdly, but in the middle there, they were hagiatso, sanctified. You hear the same kind of word that we wrote down just a few moments ago. They were sanctified. They were not just good people, only known as good people doing good things. Some of these folks were what we might call bad people who were doing sinful things. But they weren't stuck there. That wasn't their only choice in life. They were able to be washed, justified, and sanctified, cleansed, made holy, made separate. And for some of us, that means a whole lot because we had to make that kind of change in our life. All of us had to accept Christ and be baptized for the remission of our sins in order to become a Christian. But for some people, it's a bigger change. When we're caught up in a sinful lifestyle, and it's hard to even accept, to realize that I can be sanctified, I can be holy and separate. And I think it's great for us to consider this concept, this idea that, yes, we can be good people, and there are good people who just do good things. But we can be sanctified. And all Christians are, are saints. Tonight, I'd like for us to just kind of end on a couple of practical notes 
practical lessons and, and the lesson will be yours. When we think about this, this false concept, this false idea, how is it that, that people get there or why is it that people believe these kinds of things, even when scripture so plainly points out uh, that, that it's the opposite is the truth? Well, unfortunately, we get caught up in things sometimes, but we can look at these and learn some practical lessons. Number one tonight, counting noses doesn't determine the truth. Now, if you know me and you know my family, that's a Freddie Clayton saying if you've ever heard one before. Counting noses doesn't determine the truth. It's important to say that, though, and as I said at the beginning, I don't intend to, to bash one particular group or any kind of, of, of people in, in particular, but it's important to note that, yes, Catholicism is one of the main groups that promotes this kind of idea. And in case you didn't know, there are an estimated 1.2 billion Catholics in all the world. 70 million alone in the United States. And some of those folks fall into the just blatant following, following false ideas. Some of those folks fall into, well, they're just kind of ignorant. They've never considered these ideas and what the Bible actually has to say. But counting noses doesn't determine the truth. Regardless of the huge number of sincere people who are advocates of this process, this idea of sainthood or a religion, it is a system that is unknown to the New Testament. Plain and simple. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse number 2, going back not necessarily to the idea of sainthood, but just to the idea of number, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. We go all the way back to the beginning and we begin to see this concept that we even teach children still in kindergarten today that just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you should be doing it. We are all familiar with Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 14 there, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Look, we all want to be accepted. We all want to have friends we all want to be liked, all right? It's very difficult to stand out from the crowd to be what that word really means as separate. It's not fun a lot of times. It means that people look at you a little different. They look at you a little strange, and so that's hard to do. But when it comes down to it, God is very clear, very plain and simple, that the majority of people will not be found faithful. For, again, very various numerous reasons why they would choose not to be. But we have to realize that just because the number is 1.2 billion or 70 million or anywhere in between, or even if it's three against one, doesn't matter what the majority does sometimes. Now, the majority may be right. We're thankful that we live in what's called the Bible Belt most of the time. The idea that we look around us and most people are God-fearing, that there are a large number of Christians around us. That's great, but it still doesn't matter if everyone wants to do what they want to do. And we're not willing to go along with the truth of the matter. And then secondly tonight, scripture must take precedence over superstition. Scripture must take precedence over superstition. We know Psalm 119 verse 105, very familiar because we sing it, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You may remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse number 5, Paul kind of sets forth this idea when he says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And oftentimes there's a pretty clear delineation between those two. Maybe not so much when it comes to religious ideas. 
Again, many folks believe the idea of sainthood not because they're bad people or they're wanting to push this, these false ideas, but it's because they've never thought about it any other way. But there is a difference between the wisdom of men and the power of God. Nothing any man can offer up should take the place of God and his word. And of course, we're, we're very familiar with the words. I didn't have room on the screen for the verse, but John 14 and verse 15, familiar with the words of Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments. Scripture has to take precedence in our life over anything. We said this morning in the lesson, it is all about God, and it is. It is all about his word. That is where we find all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is where we find the way that we should live, the way that we should worship, the way that we should interact with one another, and so many other things in this life. We have to turn to scripture. My prayer for myself is that I would always do it so that anything that does sound forth from this pulpit and this congregation in general, in a sense, is the truth. But I would hope that if you hear something that you might think is not correct, that you would be willing to point it out because we have to go with Scripture. Scripture at all times where we find the answer to all things. So our question still looms from the very beginning. When do I get my sainthood? And I'm happy to say that we let you know the answer to that question almost every single service. And it looks just like this. When do I get my sainthood? Well, the process involved in becoming a saint includes following the simple steps of salvation. The dogma or the idea of sainthood that comes with being venerable, then uh, beatification and then canonization and all these things, it's simply not in the New Testament. But you know what is? Obedience. Obedience to God's simple plan of salvation. Would you become obedient tonight by following this simple plan? It's, it's something that, that might be attacked by the world, but when you look at the scriptures there, again, scripture over superstition, some people would attack these things by saying, well, that's just what you've always said. That's what I always hear. Well, yeah, because we believe that's exactly what the Bible says a person must do. And would you become obedient tonight? Ultimately, in this sense, being baptized for the remission of sins, because that is where you come in contact with the blood of Christ. But it is then and only then as well that the Lord will add you to his church. And you can begin to live faithfully. Tonight, maybe you're subject to God's second law of pardon. You became a saint at one time by being cleansed by the blood of Christ, but you wandered away from the truth and from God. Through confession, repentance, and prayer, come back home. Come back home to God. We've talked about this in other lessons. It's not exactly a flipping on and off of the switch, and I was a saint, now I'm not. I was a saint, now I'm not. You may become a saint once before, and you are a saint in a sense, although not living faithfully. We're thankful that God doesn't give us one shot, that it's one chance, and then we mess up and we're through. We can come back to him. We can confess our wrongs, repent of them, and pray to him for forgiveness. Not only is being a saint important, but when we think about the concept of sainthood and this idea that we are all saints together, it's a blessing. It's why, one reason why we extend the Lord's invitation at the end of every service, because you have fellow Christians, fellow saints, who want all to see each one of us, all of us, get to heaven. But only each one of us can answer for ourselves. And tonight, if you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.